The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. But we do start with that lead story in Eyewitness News, a really shocking development, however you feel, about uh, the illegal mining industry. That news coming last night that 16 people at the Angelo Informal Settlement in Boxburg died from a gas leak. The 16 include women and children who've died from the poisoning at that informal settlement. It is because of a container, a cylinder containing nitrate oxide. Um, If you are a chemistry expert, I see somebody has WhatsApp saying that they studied chemistry 50 years ago and at that time there was no such product as nitrate oxide. I'd love to hear more about this. Uh, But we are going to speak to the Akuruleni mayor in a short while. We'll hear from an eyewitness. We'll speak to our reporter on the scene. The Gauteng Premier, Panyazala Sufi, uh, was out at the scene very quickly last night, speaking this morning as well. He has been responding to comments from the community that they want the army to be deployed. Uh, Have a listen to what Panyazala Sufi has been saying. The the community is calling for the army. We have called for the army as well uh, at one stage as the the province. We've communicated that decision. um, But the process of deploying the army, and we understand historically why, the process of deploying the army is highly, highly regulated. Highly regulated. Uh, The president must gazette it. The president must consult uh, opposition parties in the legislature. Uh, the number of soldiers must be uh, appropriately within the budget. A certain committee of parliament must meet. And so it's highly regulated. Even when they are deployed, uh, they can't also openly engage. They need to give support to the police and, 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 and other things. Uh, we really feel that uh, we need a combination of many things. Uh, the, the army might assist, but you know the army. They can't be here permanently. It must be a certain limited period and all other related issues. So, the- so that's Panyaza Lasufi, the Gauteng Premier, speaking at the Angelo Informal Settlement. Well, let's speak to our reporter on the scene, Oren Singh, EWN reporter. Oren, good afternoon to you. Thank you for, for your time. You've been speaking to eyewitnesses there. We're going to play some of that incredible audio that you have sent us from eyewitnesses. But just describe to us what the scene is there now and what people are saying to you. Good afternoon, Mandy. Yeah, well, we're currently at uh, a, what it looks like an informal football um, pitch in the middle of the Angelo informal settlement. A community meeting has just been held a short while ago where our community leaders were basically appealing to residents of this informal settlement to sort of report acts of illegal mining or people who are committing acts, uh, illegal activities within this informal settlement. We understand, Mandy, that that shack, which had been set up sort of as an operation, a base for these Zamazamas to refine their gold. And the the gas cylinder that they had cut into is what they actually use um, in the process of refining the gold. Now, it's unclear whether they actually use the chemicals from that cylinder or whether they just use the container itself. Because we walked into that shack this morning, Mandy, and first of all, the chemical smell just, it hits you immediately. And this is almost 12 hours after the incident. The incident happened at 6 p.m. yesterday evening, and still there's that gas that lingers in the air, and it hits you quite hard. But when we walked into that shack, we saw a number of these cylinders. Now, they're about a meter in length, 
they're not very um, wide uh, in diameter. And um, there were at least six or seven that were propped up on some steel contraptions, and uh, they had been cut uh, quite big holes into these cylinders. And they they were soil in there, there was water in there. So it was quite an operation that they had set up there. And I think the main thing coming out from uh, the community and, and the people we've spoken to is that at the end of the day, and we heard uh, Mineral Resources Minister last week, Gwede Mantashe, uh, emphasizing this. Uh, legal mining is a criminal activity, and police are not actually doing their job. That's what the, 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 the community here are calling for. Yes, some of them are calling for the army to be deployed. But then again, Mandy, we have the army deployed. They get rid of all the Zamazamas they leave, and the Zamazamas are back again. So it's mm. a policing issue um, that the community really feel that police need to get to grips with and deal with effectively. Oren, thank you so much. Uh, Oren Singh, EWN reporter in the Angelo Informal Settlement, giving us a sense of what the community is saying at that community meeting. Well, Oren has also sent us an interview that he did with an eyewitness, Mandla Murunda, and it, it's in, in, incredibly evocative. Have a listen. What happened yesterday, um, the guys, they came with the gas bottles, three of them. So they were trying to cut them. So to make uh, something called penduga, they put uh, those gold soil to refine and to get the, 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 the gold. So now the, the gas explodes and it releases the, the, the gas, the poison gas. So there was no shark fire. Only people, they, they inhaled that uh, gas. They died at the spot. And then um, when, when, when the people tried to run, they fell down and died. And they were vomiting blood, through blood, and then they died. So we tried to revive them, but we failed. We were running around. So the time, it happens at around 6 p.m. Uh, that was the time. So now uh, I myself, I inhale it. It was smelling like a, a rotten egg, that gas. So we, we try to do plan for others to survive them, but we failed. So a lot of people died. And I, I remember yesterday, there's a two whole families died. And there is a baby which I saw uh, trying to run but she fell down and died at the spot. We tried to, to revive them, but we failed. So a lot of people died, and it is, it's a disaster. And it's a trauma to the community of Angelo. Sure. How evocative is that description there from the eyewitness, Mandla Murunda, explaining what happened last night? Let's speak now to the Kuruleni Mayor, Sibuyile Ngodwana. Uh, Mayor, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for pati- your patience as well as you've been waiting on the line. Uh, obviously, this has devastated the community. We've heard from our reporter there as well that the community is extremely concerned. Uh, what, what is your sense of, of what has happened here and, and how the community has reacted? Uh, thank you very much for your time. Good afternoon and good afternoon to the viewers. Yes, indeed, this is a, a traumatic situation, it's a tragedy, what we have seen yesterday, uh, because I received a, a phone call around about uh, nine at night to say that this tragedy that has happened in Angelo, I quickly ran there with the, the leadership of the municipality and also with the premier of the province, Honorable Panyadal Sufi. When we, we arrived, they were taken to the scene. 
when we have witnessed uh, this strategy, we, 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 we have seen uh, the bodies of the people. When you enter into the scene, uh, there was a, a, a young baby. I think he is the one he was running away from that strategy. Uh, 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 but you fall away. It's, a, it's, a, it's only a, a two-year-old years that, that, that baby. So uh, there were 16 bodies that were lying all over that place. Indeed, it, 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 it's traumatic, uh, it's shocking. It said the community are confused. They don't know what to do. They need all the help that they can get. And as the, mm. as the, and as the city of Eguruleni, we are here with them. We will provide all the necessary support that they need. Yes. Mayor, we've heard from the community um, how prevalent illegal mining is in that area. The eyewitnesses have been describing shootings taking place on a regular basis. Clearly, this was an established operation. What is being done to to curtail illegal mining in that specific area? Uh, yes, man. This illegal mining it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a, a, a challenge because we were told by the community uh, to say. Those people, Zamazamas, have taken all that area. They can't even do anything after five. So they, they requested the government to intervene and also the government to bring soldiers there so that they can raid that place uh, for them to be safe. They are worried. They are concerned about their safety. And uh, I think uh, going forward, the national government, uh, provincial and the local government must come together and unite uh, to fight this thing of illegal mining, because seriously, the the, the lives of the the, the community uh, is in danger, and uh, I don't think they are sleeping at night, because uh, the way they were explaining to us today. So, Mayor, what is actually going to be done about it? Yes, uh, the, the, the Premier is going to, to, to escalate it to the national government. We need an agent uh, uh, intervention from the national uh, in collaboration with the provincial and the local government. So it's going to, to, to facilitate those uh, quick negotiations to those interventions to be fast-tracked so that we can resolve this thing as soon as possible. Okay, Mayor, thank you very much for, for your time, for speaking to us today as well. That is the Kuruleni Mayor, Sibuyile Ngodwana, speaking to us there from the Angelo Informal Settlement. Uh, it is devastating what has happened there. The 16 people having died, including young children, and the description from the eyewitness uh, about how that happened. But what, what I'm getting from the community and what they've been saying is that illegal mining is really, really rife uh, in that area, that there's shootings happening regularly, that it is established, that they are very much running that area. So we do need to see officials really doing something. And it always takes an incident like this to be a catalyst. So maybe now something will actually happen. On 702 and Cape Talk, this is the Midday Report. Brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking. Specialists who enable your business growth aspirations. 
Kasatu, its affiliated unions are marching today across the country. They're protesting against rampant unemployment, high interest rates, the energy and water crises and inequality as well, various socio-economic problems. Remember the days when Kasatu protests used to shut down the country? Well, it doesn't seem like that's quite happening today. Nokukanya Mtambo, EWN reporter, is in Brom Park for us today, where that march is taking place in Joburg. Nokukanya, good afternoon to you. Uh, what's the turnout like there today, and what exactly uh, is this Kasatu grouping doing? Good afternoon, Mandy. So the turnout that we're seeing now is a lot better than it was an hour or two ago, when there were probably just 20 people huddled around uh, the Kosato house in Bromfontein. We're sitting at least now on just a little less than 100, I would, uh, I would estimate. It's certainly not the sort of turnout that we've seen from Kosato, as you've right, rightfully said, over the years. Uh, but it, it certainly is a bit better now. We have just wrapped up outside the Salga offices where the Kosato leadership handed over a memorandum of demands. Uh, and among those demands were calls for Salga to address the issues, particularly at municipalities, uh, saying that they want a strict, strict adherence of Labor Relations Act and um, the protecting of the collective bargaining at municipalities. They also want the local municipalities to do away with playing politics, um, you know, especially at, uh, at the cost of service delivery across the country. They're also saying that municipalities are not businesses where uh, government uh, officials can, uh, you know, grease the, the pockets of their friends, again, at the expense of, of, of service delivery across the country. So those are among, uh, Mandy, some of the things that Kosatu wants Salga to address. Salga has um, received that memorandum and has uh, committed to responding to some of their grievances uh, within a, a particular space of time. We are now making about a six-kilometer to seven-kilometer trek to the office of the Premier, where again another memorandum of demands will be submitted, Mandy. And, and Nokukanya, there are other marches taking place uh, across the country as well. Well, that's what Kosatu is telling us. What are they saying about that kind of response across the country? We know that there's one in Cape Town as well. They're marching to the provincial legislature, uh, to mm. Parliament too. Uh, uh, what are they saying about just the scale of this march today? Well, the uh, provincial chair here, Amos Monyela, says they're not deterred by the low turnout here in in Joburg um, and across the rest of the country. They are getting the numbers, but what they're saying also is that the fact that the workers, uh, few as they may be, are on the ground uh, should be uh, an indication enough for government and South Africans that uh, these matters that they're bringing to the fore should be taken seriously. They're saying that uh, you know, a criticism, in fact, of, of SAFTU, for example, because SAFTU is not a part mm. of, of this march. A criticism saying SAFTU probably wouldn't have been able to pull nearly, uh, you know, close to what these numbers are today. So they're happy with the numbers that uh, the numbers that have turned out, simply saying so long as the point is put across then they're happy with uh, right. how the day turns out. Nokukanya, thank you very much. Nokukanya Mtambo, EWN reporter, giving us an update there on that Kusatu march. The Midday Report.
The family of uh, Dr. Esau Papahad issuing a statement today saying that it's with great sadness they announced the passing of Dr. Papahad during the early hours of today in his sleep at the age of 84. Dr. Papahad served the people of South Africa throughout his life as a dedicated member of the ANC and the SACP and after 1994 as a member of parliament and minister in the presidency as well. Uh, he will be laid to rest this afternoon with Muslim rights at the West Park Cemetery at 2 o'clock. Well, let's speak to the ANC spokesperson, Mahlangi Bengu, now about uh, Esopahad, his contribution and his legacy as well. Mahlangi, good afternoon to you. Thank you for making time to speak to us today. Uh, Esopahad was very much uh, stalwart of the ANC, one of the elders of the ANC. How would he be remembered and what was his contribution to the party? He will be remembered. Thank you for having us, Mindy. He will be remembered for several things. Um, you know, is a product of uh, the youth struggles. And so he would be remembered for a call to young people um, to really participate actively in building a, a, a just and democratic future. He would also be remembered for his role as a scholar. He's is an author. He's uh, penned um, a number of several articles on a variety of questions that uh, are pressure points both in our country as well as uh, internationally. He would be remembered for being an internationalist. Um, today, we are joined by the community of nations, particularly those that come from a progressive tradition um, to mourn his passing. He would also be remembered for having been one of the many firsts that were at the center of uh, crafting the, you know, the democratic architecture of our democracy before 1994, as well as uh, at the beginning of 1994. Those are just but some of the things that we will remember him for as the African National Congress, apart from his role as a very um, uh, vocal uh, and a critical person that always asked the questions that needed to be asked when they needed to be asked. Well, McClengy, our condolences uh, to you and to the ANC and, of course, uh, to the Pahad family as well. Thank you very much for speaking to us. McClengy Bengal, the ANC spokesperson paying tribute to Dr. Esop Pahad. The Midday Report. As I mentioned earlier, the EFF's Commander-in-Chief, Julius Malema, holding a media briefing at Uncle Tom's Hall today. He's taking questions now. Uh, he's been speaking about the public protector, about Pala Pala, uh, all matter of issues. Let's have a listen in there. They... We said, we gave them a, a Jobek. They are running Jobek. We've got an MMC of uh, public safety. Who tried, it's not his department, who tried to do cleanup campaign to restore the dignity of uh, a, a, a city center. They are completely refusing to participate in that program. That will restore the dignity of the people who stay at the city center. There's no disagreement. The, the disagreement is, let's go massively to go and clean Johannesburg. We're not fighting over tenders. We're not fighting over positions. That administration you have in the Kurleni is an administration of the ANC, by the way. We never brought any municipal manager or city manager. We never brought any HOD. Those people were employed by the ANC. So, as to what is the problem... I don't know. There could be only one problem. They cannot benefit from corruption because we will not allow them. They stole. 
the compact drugs, when we're asking the DA to account for the compact drugs, instead of the DA answering, the ANC was the one that was feeling the heat. The EFF uh, Commander-in-Chief Julius Malema speaking about the city of Joburg, about coalitions as well. 702 and Cape Talk. Book of the Week. On Thursdays in the Midday Report, we speak to the author of a local non-fiction book. And this is a voice that you will be familiar with after the COVID pandemic for sure. Because early in the COVID-19 pandemic, Salim Abdul Karim was catapulted into this prominent position in the media. On TV, he became very much the face of South Africa's science in the country's response to the pandemic. And up until that point, uh, he was busy with research, groundbreaking research on AIDS, HIV. He had won many awards globally and uh, he has been recognized as one of the world's leading epidemiologists, making him ideally positioned to take the scientific lead in the COVID-19 response. He has now written a book. It's called Standing Up for Science, A Voice of Reason. And it takes us behind the scenes of the COVID-19 pandemic and government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's amazing to get these behind-the-scenes insights. Uh, It's inspiring it's informative it really explains what was thinking and the role that science played as well so a great pleasure today to welcome professor salim abdul karim to the midday report prof good afternoon to you and great to have you on the show today very good afternoon to you and to all of your listeners your decision to to write a book was made on the principle that you hold dear of mutual interdependence the belief that each of us should act to benefit the collective and not just ourselves. Tell us about that and and, and why you thought a book was a good idea. Well, I've seen uh, over time how society has been changing. And one of those changes has been that people have become uh, more self-centered and less selflessness is what I've been seeing. And, in order to appreciate the way in which pandemics are spreading, we have to appreciate that whatever I do affects everyone else and whatever everyone else is doing affects me. So I'm mutually dependent on everyone else and they are dependent on me. If I you know, happen to be sick and coughing and happen to go out into a bus and and into a a shopping mall and spread the virus, I'm infecting many people. So that's what set me on this path of saying, we've got to learn the lessons. We've got to know, we've got to document what happened. We've got to learn from it. We've got to do better next time. And so Mm. I started writing this to try and capture that. You speak in the book about what was going on behind the scenes, and and that's what makes this uh, so compelling. So uh, the lockdown was announced by the president in the first of one of those uh, late-night family meetings, as they came to be known. And you speak in the book about how you didn't really actually know much about lockdowns. There hadn't been lockdowns before. And when you were appointed as chair of the MAC, the Ministerial Advisory Committee, everyone assumed it was your decision, but it actually wasn't. Absolutely. And, you know, don't blame them for assigning it to me because I became, you know, synonymous with what, what the government's response was or what society's response was. But the, the factual situation was that the Minister of Health called a meeting on the 23rd of March. It was a Zoom call 
where we are about 50 or 60 scientists and clinicians and laboratory people on that call. And he and on that call, he announced that he's creating this ministerial advisory committee on COVID-19. And on the committee, on, on that call, the director general announced that I would be the chair of this committee. Now, he hadn't asked me, but he didn't need to because he knew I would always say yes when called upon to serve in this way. But it was that very evening that the president announced the lockdown. So, you know, we we didn't even know this announcement was coming. It came as a surprise to me as it did to mm-hmm. everyone else when I learned about it. You know, I had already been starting to look at a lockdown because of what was happening in China. I'd never heard of it before until you know COVID-19 and so I was I was educating myself about it right. just as much as everyone else and then on the 13th of April in 2020 uh, it was announced that there was going to be this adoption of of masks and you did that presentation the slideshow you started trending on Twitter you became a household name for explaining the science in a simple accessible way something your your, your kids were probably more excited about as you described than you were Absolutely. I mean, when I came back from the command center after having done the presentation, you know, the first thing I arrived back and and both my, uh, all three of my children were there and they were saying, oh, you know, you are trending. And I said, no, I'm just wearing my normal clothes. I don't, I didn't really understand. (laughs) Dad jokes. (laughs) Yeah, they were using some, you know, terminology. So, I then they then showed it to me that I was uh, on some kind of ranking on appearing on Twitter, and it turns out that people were talking a lot about what I had to say on television, and so that's when I began to appreciate, uh, you know, the impact that this had. And I mean, all I was doing, as I saw it, was I was sharing what I understood from the science of the pandemic. But what was important was I was able to explain it in a way that others could interpret, others could understand Mm. and empower themselves to determine how they should act. And I wasn't telling them what to do. I was explaining the underlying reasons so that they could make their own judgments. You also then, of course, became a target personally. You described the disinformation bandwagon in your book. And just to, to read a couple of lines here, you say, In taking up this challenge of repudiating disinformation on denialism, vaccines, viral origins, fake treatments and others, I had become a target. I was regularly challenging myths and conspiracy theories in the broadcast media, press interviews, webinars and my writings. This led to a substantial backlash against me, attacks, insults, lock him up tweets and death threats as well. Prof, you knew that you would be a prime target of the anti-vaxxers because of your your high profile, uh, but you also describe how your family had to deal with this too. Yeah, you know, I have been dealing with denialism and people who, you know, don't want to uh, appreciate and accept, you know, basic scientific facts. And I dealt with this in HIV. I mean, I dealt with it, you know, I dealt with HIV denialism at a pretty high level. And even on, you know, at that time, you know, during HIV denialism, there was no social media in the same way we have now. But you know, people attacked me and so on. But I always felt it was done in a way that you know we could we could we could debate the issues and challenge each other. But now it's a very different situation. 
People get personal and people are often faceless or nameless and they embark on campaigns against individuals and it's all based on lies and untruths and I know I, I'm, I myself don't get hassled about it. I mean, when I release the book, there's a whole lot of individuals who are uh, COVID denialists or anti-vaxxers who have been trolling the media and uh, the social media have been putting uh, statements, you know, attacking me on this or that. I mean, that sort of stuff doesn't really bother me. But I, I do take umbrage when they choose to attack family members as well, because I think that that's really uncalled for and inappropriate. And, you know, we had our fair share of that during COVID-19. And the thing is uh, also that that your entire family was in one way or another involved in the fight against COVID-19. It took over your life. Uh, your wife, of course, which who is very much your, your peer and your contemporary, your three children, all involved in one way or another as well. So you, you, you were all on, on the same front line. Yeah, it was quite uh, strange because the first person in our family to publish an article in a scientific journal on COVID was my son. He was, he happened to be on vacation from UCT where he's doing, he was doing his degree in computer science. And he was working with uh, Professor Dolavera when, you know, COVID-19 appeared. And Professor Dolavera has a software package and Wazim, my son, was working on it to help distinguish the new coronavirus from the others. So in January of 2020, he published a paper with a whole group in, uh, in Professor Dolavera's team on this new software. And so it became, in our family, the first major publication on COVID-19 you know, within a month of the virus or the first cases even being announced. And then thereafter, both my daughters have written very extensively on it. My eldest has written on some of the legal and ethical aspects. And my middle daughter is a journalist. And I mean, she's written far more than me on COVID and has appeared on television and radio more than me on COVID because that's her job, and she's done a superb, uh, <laughs> yes. taking it on, you know, in a superb way. Uh, and then at the end of the book, Prof, you also speak about lessons for the future, what we what we've learned. But you do some scenario planning as well, because as you say, these lessons for posterity, uh, if we ever need to go through this again, why are those so important? I think what we uh, need to fully appreciate is that we saw the first coronavirus potential pandemic back in 2002. We saw when it was called SARS, there was an outbreak in China and in Hong Kong. Fortunately, it was contained at that time by the Chinese. Then we saw a second coronavirus called MERS appearing through camels and then into humans, and we saw outbreaks occur. Fortunately, that was also contained. It was the third coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, that we just simply couldn't contain. It was just too infectious. And so it caused a pandemic. So now we have a pretty good idea that coronaviruses are going to cause more pandemics. They are coming. And we don't know when or what it's going to look like, 
but we can be pretty confident that we need to be ready for another pandemic of a coronavirus. And of course, there's also uh, influenza and many other diseases that can cause pandemics. So we've got to take these lessons forward. And part of taking these lessons forward is learning about how we would do better in science, how we would do better in politics, how would we do better in understanding and interpreting science for better policies. And so that's what I try to encapsulate, recognizing that, you know, we are still in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. We could still be seeing a new variant emerge. Fortunately, that prospect is progressively becoming less and less likely with each passing day. But we still are in a situation where the virus is spreading. We still have several hundred deaths a day from COVID in the world. So we've got to ensure that we've taken those lessons and benefit not just for the COVID-19 pandemic we're living in, but for the future as well. Prof, you also say uh, that uh, for every one of us, you believe can be a mythbuster and an ambassador of science. And, and that was what was really remarkable about South Africa's response to the pandemic. But what really comes through in your book is how the country's response was science-led uh, and, and what we can take from that. And, and then, of course, the significance of your role then in explaining that science to the layman. Yeah, I mean, you've hit it on the head because, you know, I've been providing scientific advice to many governments, to UN agencies for many years. Our job as scientists is a backroom job. We sit, you know, in our offices, in meeting rooms, on our computers, analyzing data, producing graphs and trying to explain the science to policymakers. We're not the ones normally on television and so on. That's the politician's job to do that. But in COVID-19, the tables turned. And they turned in a way that what would normally be for me, you know, a task that we would do away from the limelight, you know, away from the cameras, but just quietly in the background, you know, suddenly catapulted us into the front line. And we had to rise to that occasion. And we had to explain the science and we had to explain this this pandemic because people were getting anxious because they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't understand why they were being asked to do X and Y. So I think for me, it, it created a new kind of environment, a new kind of way in which scientists needed to relate to the public. And that, you know, we're going to have to be, we're going to have to do better the next time as well to ensure that, you know, science is not just a backroom activity, but that science is coming to the fore, ensuring that we tackle these myths, we tackle the misinformation, mm-hmm. we get the truth out there so people can make the right decision. Well, Prof, thank you for leading us uh, through the pandemic, for explaining everything to us and for writing this book as well. The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. The Midday Report.